I assume that ambiguous losses can traumatize. In this way, the symptoms of unresolved grief are similar to post-traumatic stress disorder called PTSD. PTSD is a disorder resulting from psychologically stressing events that were outside the realm of usual human experience. These events were never resolved and thus are continually re-experienced even years after the original event. Ambiguous loss is also a psychologically distressing event that is outside the realm of ordinary human experience. Like the events triggering PTSD, it lacks resolution and traumatizes. But with ambiguous loss, the trauma, the ambiguity, continues to exist in the present. It is not post-anything. Ambiguous loss is typically a long-term situation that traumatizes and immobilizes, not a single event that later has flashback event effects. The outcomes of PTSD are also similar, though not identical, to outcomes of long-term ambiguous loss. Both can result in depression, anxiety, psychic numbing, distressing dreams, and guilt. But ambiguous loss is unique in that the trauma goes on and on in what families describe as a roller coaster ride, during which they alternate between hope and hopelessness. A loved one is missing, then sighted, then lost again or a family member is dying and goes into remission, then the illness returns again in full force. Hopes are raised and dashed so many times that physically people no longer react. Just as animals lay down in their cages and no longer try to avoid the pain in early experiments of erratically placed electric shocks, People experiencing trauma, out of which they can't make sense, feel helpless and no longer act. Although the focus on family stress management does not exclude the possibility of individual and group therapies, my approach centers on encouraging couples and families to talk together sharing information as well as their perceptions and feelings, and eventually come to a consensus on how to celebrate the part of their loved one that is still present and mourn the part that is lost. By telling their story to someone who will listen and help make sense of it, families receive the validation they need to move forward with the grieving process. No matter what their beliefs, values, or theoretical preferences, with the kind of intervention, people can learn to live well despite suffering ambiguous loss.
Leaving without goodbye. The absent are always present by Carol Shields, The Stone Diaries. I was an early, it was an early spring day in Washington, D.C. when I visited the Vietnam War Memorial and found myself surrounded by a quiet crowd of schoolchildren, tourists, and still grieving relatives. Of special interest to me were the names of the missing soldiers, or MIAs. Unlike prisoners of war who eventually came home or were found dead, these men are still lost. Their families, not knowing if they are dead or alive, endure a special kind of agony. As I walked in silence past the endless names, I noticed a blue hair ribbon, a pack of camels, and a handwritten note on the ground below the name of a man still missing. There will never be a day when I won't think of you, the note read. Most people need to cut need the concrete experience of seeing the body of a loved one who has died because it makes loss real. Most families of missing persons never find such verification of death and thus face greater challenges in shifting their perceptions about absence or presence. For relatives of those soldiers whose names are engraved as MIA, even the Vietnam Memorial cannot bring certainty of death. The families of missing soldiers that I studied had difficulty finding closure because the uncertainty was extreme and persistent. With frustrating regularity, there were just enough reports claiming that some of the men were still alive to rekindle a grief that was beginning to heal. Families could not complete their mourning when their loss remained so uncertain. My research showed that wives of these missing men kept their families functioning but often at their own emotional expense. I was particularly interested in the wives' perceptions of the ambiguity surrounding their loss. How did they make sense of it? How did they cope and move on in spite of it? In California, I interviewed a wife of a missing pilot several years after her husband's plane had been shot down over Southeast Asia. We had just completed a long questionnaire and I was about ready to leave when she told me a story I will never forget. She was seeing me to the door and I almost didn't tune into what she was saying because I thought I had all the information I needed. She told me her husband had come back to talk with her twice since he was shot down. The first time he came to visit her, they had a conversation in the driveway in front of the house. 
He told her to sell the house, get a bigger one to accommodate their four growing children and move to a better school district. She said he also told her to sell the car and get a station wagon to make room for the soon-to-be teenagers and their things. Though she had never made such decisions before, she now did everything he told her to do. About a year later, she said her husband returned for a second visit. This time their conversation took place in the bedroom. He told her she had done a good job, that he was proud of her and loved her, and that he was now going to say goodbye. This is when I knew he was really dead, she said. I found this woman's story eye-opening, not only because what she was saying, but because of the intensity of her convictions that these visits had really happened. I had been trained as a social scientist to record only objective data, objective reality, yet to paraphrase the symbolic interactionist W.I. Thomas, because this woman perceived her story to be true, it was true in its consequences. Conversations with her missing husband comforted and reassured her, enabling her to make necessary decisions and changes that she might not otherwise have been able to make. His symbolic presence provided direction and, importantly, the time she needed to adapt to her new role as a single parent and head of the family. Sometime later, this woman told me that she had grown up on an Indian reservation where it was the custom in the case of sudden death to keep the deceased person present for a while to ease the abruptness of the loss. Her eagerness for her MIA husband's symbolic presence was an important lesson, although her story did not fit my requirements at that time for hard data. I could see that her experience was real to her and had benefited her functioning and consequently her children's well-being. Her story forever changed the way I think about and do research. While this wife of a missing pilot found a way to adapt to her family's ambiguous loss, many people do not. Their grief remains unresolved and they cannot move on. Sometimes whole societies are affected by such a loss. In 1958, Imre Nagy, the beloved Prime Minister of Hungary, disappeared. The rumor was that he had been shot, but officially this was denied, and there was no grave. Not until 1989 was Nagy's body produced and the public funeral held in his honor. People came for a massive display of grief that finally brought closure 
to a nation's ambiguous loss. Even on a national level, healing requires some measure of clarity. Only when things are made right again, bodies produce services held and grieving validated by the larger community, can people put their losses to rest. But often the evidence verifying death is grim. From 1975 to 1979, until Himmer Rug regime of Pol Pot was driven from power, more than 14,000 Cambodian prisoners were detained, tortured, and killed. Like the Nazis, Gilmar Rouge kept a death list. But theirs included photograph, photographs. Today, relatives of missing family members can find certainty in this Maccabee record entitled The Killing Fields where portraits taken of frightened people just before their execution are the only certification of their death. Such records may be of some help to families because they give assurance of death. But like Nazi records of Holocaust victims, they do not lessen the horror. Mysterious disappearances are always a consequence of war and political conflict. Native Americans, Jews, Russians, among Cambodians, Tibetans, Bosnians, and Rwandans all share a history of traumatic uprooting and near annihilation. During the Rwandan conflict, a health care worker, Marita Utsivana, was separated from her husband and children. After two and a half years as a refugee, she found her children, but her anxiety continued. I wait for news of my husband. I just want to know if he's dead or alive. Such stories are not unusual, and the lack of a goodbye to those who mysteriously disappeared, continues to haunt survivors and subsequent generations. The American legacy of ambiguous loss also has a traumatic social history. The uprooting of Africans who were brought by force to the shores of the United States and sold off with little concern for Persevering marriages, persevering marriages and families. In Alex Haley's Ruts, we see the endless struggle of a husband and wife and their children to stay together, in mind if not in body. Given this history of resilience in the face of traumatic, ambiguous losses, it is no wonder that contemporary African-American families define family with less rigid boundaries than those with European roots. When working with people experiencing unresolved losses, family therapists and researchers must not label as pathological 
their resistance to forming new attachments and reconstructing their family. Their adaptations may be dysfunctional, but that is not the same as saying that the person or family is dysfunctional. In the absence of clarity, people understandably cling to the status quo because at some level they hope that the person who is missing will someday return. Even community, church, and medical professionals often inadvertently contribute to the stagnation of grief because they are not accustomed to give in support unless there is a certified loss. When such clarity is lacking, families are on their own. As with the wife of the missing pilot, people must find their own way out of the ambiguity. Many unclear goodbyes in everyday family life also fall outside the traditional categories of loss, but nonetheless cause a distress. Frequent among them are the absences associated with divorce, adoption, migration, and overcommitted to work. Divorce, for example, provides a fertile ground for confusion about the absence or presence of a non-custodial parent. The family portrait is well, a well-known symbol of who is in and who is out of the family often documents the confusion within the family following divorce and remarriage. Professional photographers are increasingly asked to delete a divorced mate from family photographs, only to be asked by the offspring years later to put the absent parent back in again. Wedding photographers now take twice as many photos at weddings because the bride and groom often ask for separate posings with their divorced parents and the parents' new mates. The family event of divorce, now all too common, can be better understood and managed by everyone involved if it is viewed as an ambiguous loss. Something was lost, but something is still there. The marriage is lost, but the parenting continues. One would hope that grandparenting on both sides would continue as well. Identifying what has been lost and grieving it while also identifying the connections that continue in their lives is a healthier approach for children than simply saying mommy and daddy don't love each other anymore, but they will always love you. Children often have trouble trusting this statement. They know they have lost something. We might as well validate that for them as we stress what remains the same in their family. 
In addition, children and adults are relieved to learn that what they are experiencing has a name. The trouble is not divorce per se, indeed. For many families, divorce has a deleterious effect. But the ambiguity in the unresolved loss that often accompany, accompany it. The loss associated with divorce is often more difficult than the loss that results from death because the former remains inherently unclear. The idea of ambiguous loss provides children and adults with a way to comprehend their situation and learn to live more functionally with divorce. In my own case, I initially rejected family therapist Carl Whitaker's pronouncement, you can never get divorced. But years later, when my former husband and I co-hosted a dinner for our son's wedding, when he called to tell me of a mutual friend's death, and when he and I took our new spouses to our daughter's holiday dinner parties and birthday celebrations for our grandchildren, I realized Whitaker was right. Old relationships do not simply disappear. They continue for most of us, even in a revised family portrait. Learning to live with the ambiguity of divorce and remarriage requires a whole new set of skills. <clears throat> the first is to revise our perception of who our family is and who it is not. To determine this, we might ask ourselves whom we would invite to a special family celebration or ritual such as a wedding, graduation, bar mitzvah, baptism, or birthday. Such guest lists quickly reveal whom we consider family or co-parent, as well as whom we exclude as family. Today, the lists often include divorced parents and their new mates. All this requires a second skill, the ability to let go of needing an absolute and precise definition of family. This is not easy because the beliefs and values associated with the family will vary immensely among people and religions, people and regions. <coughs> it helps to recognize that we are already more flexible than we think. Taking in a sister's child Letting go of, an, of adult children as they grow up, cooperating as parents even after divorce, or taking care of grandchildren. Rather than weakening the family, such elasticity in family composition enhances resilience and flexibility. Finally, this process of continuity and change requires periodic rethinking 
of who is part of the family, particularly during times of transition, such as when people enter the family through marriage, remarriage or birth, and exit through separation, divorce, or death. The ambiguous entries and exits associated with remarriage and divorce will always cause stress. In a sense, one has to abandon the concept of monogamy in order to make divorce and remarriage work because a first marriage does not simply stop when the second one starts. It is forever a part of the fabric of one's life. As with a death certificate, a divorce decree cannot erase the experience, good or bad. Consequently, often more than a memory remains in subsequent relationships. And with divorce, unlike death, the ex-mate is often physically present especially if there are children to co-parent. Being able to live with the ambiguity inherent in such situations is one of the main secrets to a successful remarriage. In my clinical work, I saw Deborah, who had been divorced from John for more than two years but was unable to make a new life for herself because she still felt married and controlled. My husband divorced me, she said, but he keeps coming back into my life. When he picks up and returns the children, he wants to come in and talk. He even asks for a cup of coffee or worse yet, opens the cupboard and helps himself. Even the kids think it's strange. It's driving me crazy. How can I forget him when he keeps coming back? You can't, I said. You had three children and 20-year relationship with him. You can't forget that, nor should you. But you can revise the relationship. We talked about setting boundaries for the marital relationship that was over while keeping the parental relationship going not needing to close John entirely out of her life, ease Deborah's tension. She wanted him involved with her children. He was a good father and she needed his help. But it took her a while longer to identify how to disconnect from the marriage unaccustomed to setting boundaries with John in a house they had shared for so long. She had difficulty keeping him out of what was now her house and her cupboards. Over time, various people came with Deborah to her sessions with me, her mom, her sisters, her ex-husband, and his current wife, who came along mostly as a listener, and I support to make sure, and I suspect to make sure that I wasn't aiming for a reconciliation. In the end, Deborah came to define herself and her family more clearly. 
Among other things, she told John not to come into her house unless she was unless he was invited. He seemed miffed, but I could see that his present wife eagerly supported this idea and readily soothed his chagrin. Deborah seemed pleased as well. John was not entirely out of her life, but she was clearer now about when he was in and when he was out. What was over and what continued. It is this kind of redrawing of the family in situations of divorce and remarriage that makes possible a greater chance for peace and harmony. Divorced families do not have to be broken families. They can simply be reconstructed versions of the original. When the marriage contract is resolved, not everything is lost. Some people, however, can't tolerate the ambiguity of who is in or out of their family after divorce. For those who can't, there are superficial solutions. As mentioned, enterprising photographic techniques can change people's marital history by rubbing out those who are no longer wanted in a wedding or family photograph. Many are apparently so discomforted by an old portrait that they are willing to pay high prices for their revision. This same discomfort with ambiguity is addressed by members of divorced families who stay connected. The family is still a family, but it has a different structure now. If, for example, a portrait of the old family is absolutely necessary for children, why not encourage them to construct a collage of all those people they consider family? This would be more honest than the artificial posing of people who are uncomfortable being together in the same room. Photographs, even a collage, are just symbols. However, eventually family members must change their perceptions about who continues the family. Even so, if relatives want to stay in touch individually, with those who used to be in their official family, why not? Their view of family may not seem real to others, but it is real for them. Loss without closure may also occur in the everyday situation of adoptions. Although the birth mother is more conscious of the actual separation, then is the baby given up for adoption, both can be affected by ambiguous loss. The child, too, may wonder where the mother is, if she is well, or what she is like. One way to determine adoptive parents' tolerance for ambiguity may be to explore whether they 
choose an open or closed adoption. When adoption files are voluntarily open and all parties are known to one another, the adopting family appears to be able to tolerate ambiguity and is able to think about, even include the birth mother in their lives. In closed adoptions where files are locked, adoptive parents appear to prefer the absolute of no contract. Regardless of the type of adoption chosen, however, researchers are finding that the birth mother is thought about often and kept psychologically present in the mind of both the adopted mother and the adopted child. The psychological family is a reality for those affected by adoption too. In my own practice, I have worked with adopted people troubled by the ambiguity of not knowing the identity or whereabouts of their biological parents. Their need to know is often strongest when they begin thinking about starting their own families. With a more flexible view of family, their search to solve this mystery does not have to erode their relationship with their adoptive parents. Even when biological parents are found, the adoptive parents remain the real parents for, as many adopted kids will say, they were there for me in the middle of the night. Physical presence, even more than genetics, defines a parent in a child's eyes. A few adoptees have told me that in retrospect, not knowing might have been better, but many continue to take the risk of searching for their biological roots. For them, knowing is necessary to resolve the loss. Even if their search yields news that is less than ideal, Acting as if the membership list of an adoptive family is etched in stone may in the end be more stressful than explicitly recognizing that the family has ambiguous boundaries. Some people in all the time some in some of the time and some out all the time. Clear flu fluidity as opposed to an unbroken ambiguity is not harmful in adoptive family relationships if it is openly recognized by everyone, including the children. Perhaps the most common break in one's perception of family comes from immigration. A wave of immigration from continental Europe and Ireland occurred a century ago, peaking in 1909 
with 1.2 million immigrants passing through the gates of Ellis Island into the United States that year alone. Today, America remains a nation of immigrants, though now the points of departure are most often Mexico, Latin America, and Asia. With fewer restrictions on travel, people worldwide are on the move. Even within the United States, families continue to move around. From countryside to city, from east to west, from north to south, and then back again. In a world where people are constantly uprooting, the legacy of ambiguous loss remains strong. My own family and many others in the American Midwest share this legacy from the massive immigration movement that stretched from the middle 1800s to the turn of the last century. Norwegian, German, Finnish, Irish, Swiss families immigrated to settle here. Leaving Europe was traumatic, for it was unlikely they would ever return. Farewells were especially difficult for the women. Just as their families began to take root in America, they began to feel settled. Historical diaries <coughs> tell us that many of their husbands insisted on going even further west into the Dakotas or to the flats of Nebraska or California, usually for more land or for gold. As the men followed their itch for adventure, the uprooting and repeated goodbyes took a high toll on immigrant women on the plains whose family connections had already been broken. Hammond Garland, in his stories about the middle border between the Midwest and the frontier further west, wrote of watching his mother reluctantly uproot once again because his father yearned to move west. One by one, the women put their worn, ungraceful arms about her, kissed her in, with trembling lips, and went away in silent grief. The scene became too painful for me at last, and I flew away from it out into the fields, bitterly asking, why should this suffering be? Why should mother be wrenched from her dearest friends and forced to move away to a strange land? Garland describes how, at family holidays, his father and the other men always wanted to sing a song his mother and the other women disliked. It went, cheer up, brothers, as we go. Over the mountains westward we go. Garland describes the scene. My father's face shone with the light of the explorer, the pioneer. The words appealed to him as the finest poetry. It meant that all was fine and hopeful and buoyant in American life to him. But on my mother's sweet face, 
Her wistful expression deepened, and in her fine eyes a shadow lay. To her, this song meant not so much the acquisition of a new home as the loss of all her friends and relatives. That song meant deprivation, suffering, loneliness, and heartache. For many immigrant women on the Midwestern frontier, the repetition of traumatic goodbyes became too much and they simply gave up. Historical, historical documents from the old asylum in St. Peter's, Minnesota, verify that this institution became a haven for some women who could not face yet one more uprooting. Even when Midwestern immigrant women were able to settle in one place, their broken connections with family back home were painful. Loneliness engulfed them. They particularly missed their mothers and sisters in times of childbirth and illness. A Wisconsin journalist who recorded oral histories writes, One family recounts how the father and mother both fell ill with cholera during the epidemic in 1853. The wife was so weak that she was unable to walk and the husband was unable to get out of bed, yet was burning up with fever. He told his wife that if he could have a drink of water, he thought he could get well. Their house was between three quarters of a mile from Sugar River, from which their water was obtained. There was no one to get the water, so the wife took a small bucket, placed the handle in her teeth and painfully slowly crawled the distance to the stream, pushing her way through tall grass, woods, and underbrush. She dipped the pail into the water and carried it back in the same matter, manner, and her husband lived. There were few people to help such women with their caregiving duties. Neighbors were too far away. Kinfolk were back in the old country, physically cut off from mothers and sisters who ordinarily would have been there for them, these immigrant women endured a painful isolation that was outside the realm of ordinary human experience. The unclear goodbyes of immigration also affected the mothers left behind as their daughters and sons departed for the United States. Anna, a woman I often saw working in her garden as I walked to school as a teenager, kept letters she received from her mother back in Switzerland. They illustrate the sadness of knowing she would never again see her daughter and sons, <coughs> who were always on her mind. On December 2nd, 1926, Anna's mother wrote this letter. Dear Anna, thank you for the money and the beautiful family pictures you sent us. All of your children look so pretty in their nice clothes. But you, dear Anna, you look so thin. One can see that you have gone through a lot. I can't look at 
kept your picture long enough, even though I cry each time I do. I am so lonesome for you. Ambrose and Carl in America. I know that I will never see any of you in this world again. The Irish may have been more direct in facing their unclear goodbyes. When their children left for America, parents actually thought of such departures as funerals. In this way, the community-sanctioned farewell rituals may have helped families find closure by symbolically finalizing the goodbye. They knew full well they might never see their children again. An old manuscript tells the story, it was just like a big funeral. And the last parting was indeed sad to see. The parents especially were so sad as if the person leaving were actually dead. You would rather not be there at all if you would be any way soft yourself. Such ambiguous losses continued to cause distress during the massive migrations a century ago across the Atlantic to the United States. While listening to oral histories at Ellis Island, I heard that some pain described by a Swiss Bernice woman who as a girl had seen her father leave for America while she, her siblings, and her mother had to stay behind. I can still see me and my brother and sister were standing there waving. My mother's crying, and it's one of those things. It's like a photographic thing that stays with you. We were crying, too. By the way, my mother talked. She was so afraid that he would never come back, that he would be swallowed up in the ocean because it was so far away. And this is what her feeling was, that she would never see him again. My paternal grandmother, Sophie Grassenbacher, was a mother left behind. Her many letters reveal the lifelong ambiguity she experienced as a result of being emotionally close to my father, yet physically separated from him. She would always begin with my dears and end with may God protect you always, mother. She wrote a letter just about every month, often ending with it is a big pleasure for me to chat with you a little. If only today I could be with you. But then World War II began and the bombs came dangerously close to her home on the Swiss border near Basel. She wrote, My dears, finally a few lines from me. I had the blues bad today. I would say I was longing for my dear ones far away. She wrote 
of hard economic times and the fear of war, ending with, I think of you every day. You have two big girls now, my sister and me. I wish I could see them. In 1943, when mail was sporadic, owing to the war, she wonders if her letters have gotten through and longs for word from her son in America. How are you doing over there? I hope all is well. I am asked by all your brothers and sisters if I have any news from you. Yes, we're all longing for a letter from you and to find out how you are doing. After such a long silence, we're longing to hear from you. Even if it's not possible to write, I am with you at times anyway in my thoughts. I am sure you have two big sons by now, my brothers. I wish I could see them in person. Many times I take the pictures out of the drawer just to look at them. Write as soon as you can. After the war, <coughs> letters were exchanged more regularly. How you make us all so happy with your letters, which we all like to read. Even though I cannot do anything for you anymore, I think of you every day, and I pray for you that you all will stay well and healthy. I will now close my chat. Don't look at my mistakes. I feel that my thoughts are getting too weak to write letters. Sophie is now 79 years old. After the war, it became possible to make a transatlantic phone call. So for her 80th birthday, my father placed his first and only call to his mother. I recall the event vividly. My sister and I were able to say, Salute, Grossmutti. Hello, Gross, uh, Grandmother. Those were the only words I ever spoke to her, and it was the only time... I was ever to hear her voice. Parashah 31, Leviticus 21. Adonai said to Moses, 
Speak to the Cohen, the sons of Aaron. Tell them no Cohen is to make himself unclean for any of his people who dies, except for his close relatives, his mother, father, son, daughter, and brother. He may also make himself unclean for his virgin sister, who has never married and is therefore dependent on him. He may not make himself unclean because he is a leader among his people. Doing so would profane him. Cohen are not to make ball spots on their heads, mar the edges of their beards, or cut gashes in their flesh. Rather, they are to be holy for their God and not profane the name of their God. For they are the ones who present Adonai with offerings made by fire, the bread of their God. Therefore, they must be holy. A Kohen is not to marry a woman who is a prostitute, who has been profaned, or who has been divorced, because he is holy for his God. Rather, you are to set him apart as holy, because he offers the bread of your God. He is to be holy for you, because I, Adonai, who makes you holy am holy. The daughter of a Kohen who profanes herself by prostitution profanes her father. She is to be put to death by fire. The Kohen who is ranked highest among his brothers, the one on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who is consecrated to put on the garments, is not to stop grooming his hair, tear his clothes, go into where any dead body is, or make himself unclean, even when his father or mother dies. He may not leave the sanctuary then, or profane the sanctuary of his God, because the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am Adonai. He is to marry a virgin. He may not marry a widow, divorcee, profaned woman, or prostitute, but he must marry a virgin from among his own people and not disqualify his descendants among his people. Because I am Adonai, who makes him holy. Adonai said to Moses, Tell Aaron, none of your descendants who has a defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. May approach. No one blind, lame, with a mutilated face or a limb too long, a broken foot or a broken arm, a hunched back, stunted growth, a cataract in his eye, festering or running sores, or damaged testicles. No one descended from Aaron the Cohen who has such a defect may approach to present the offerings for Adonai made by fire. He has a defect and is not to approach God for the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the especially holy and the holy, only he is not to go into the curtain or approach the altar because he has a defect, so that he will not profane my holy places because I am Adonai who makes them holy. Moses said these things to Aaron, his sons, and all the people of Israel. Adonai said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to separate themselves from the holy things of the people of Israel. 
which they set apart as holy for me, so that they will not profane my holy name. I am Adonai. Tell them, any descendant of yours, through all your generations, who approaches the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate to Adonai, and is unclean, will be cut off from before me. I am Adonai. Any descendant of Aaron with leprosy or a discharge is not to eat the holy things until he is clean. Anyone who has touched a person made unclean by a dead body, or who has had a seminal emission, or who has touched a reptile or insect that can make him unclean, or a man who is unclean for any reason, and who can transmit to him his uncleanliness. The person who touches any of these will be unclean until evening, and is not to eat the holy things unless he bathes his body in water. After sunset he will be clean, and afterwards he may eat the holy things because they are his food. But he is not to eat anything that dies naturally, or is torn to death by wild animals, and thereby make himself unclean. I am Adam. The Kohen must observe this charge of mine. Otherwise, if they profane it, they will bear the consequences of their sin for doing so and die in it. I am Adonai, who makes them holy. No one who is not a Kohen may eat anything holy, nor may a tenant or employee of a Kohen eat anything holy. But if a Kohen acquires a slave, either through purchase or through his being born in his household, he may share his food. If the daughter of a Kohen is married to a man who is not a Kohen, she is not to have a share of the food set aside from the holy things. But if the daughter of the Kohen is a widow or divorcee and has no child, and she is sent back to her father's house as when she was young, she may share in her father's food, but no one, not a Kohen, is to share in it. If a person eats holy food by mistake, he must add one-fifth to it and give the holy food to the Kohen. They are not to profane the holy things of the people of Israel that they have set apart for Adonai and thus caused them to bear guilt requiring a guilt offering by eating their holy things, because I am Adonai who makes them holy. Adonai said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his son, and to the entire people of Israel. said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to the entire people of Israel. Tell them, when anyone, whether a member of the house of Israel or a foreigner living in Israel, brings his offering, either in connection with a vow or as a voluntary offering, and brings it to Adonai as a burnt offering, in 
order for you to be accepted, you must bring a meal without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. You are not to bring anything with a defect, because it will not be accepted from you. Whoever brings a sacrifice of peace offerings to Adonai in fulfillment of a vow or as a voluntary offering, whether it come from the herd or from the flock, it must be unblemished and without defect in order to be accepted. If it is blind, injured, mutilated, has an abnormal growth, or has festering or running sores, you are not to offer it to Adonai or make such an offering by fire on the altar to Adonai. If a bull or lamb has a limb which is too long or short, you may offer it as a voluntary offering, but for a vow it will not be accepted. An animal with bruised, crushed, torn, or cut genitals you are not to offer to Adonai. You are not to do these things in your land, and you are not to receive any of these from a foreigner for you to offer bread for your God, because their deformity is a defect in them. They will not be accepted from you. My revelation on studying this part of the Bible is that our God is very particular about the way we come to Him. He's not going to accept us if we are not sincere. I got that message from the Lord again and again regarding how important sincerity is to Him. So I'll continue now with Leviticus 26. Adonai said to Moses, When a bull sheep or goat is born, it is to stay with his mother for seven days. But from the eighth day on, it may be accepted for an offering made by fire to Adonai. However, no animal is to be slaughtered together with its young on the same day, neither cow nor you. When you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to Adonai, you must do it in a way such that you will be accepted. It must be eaten on the same day it is offered. Leave none of it till morning. I am Adonai. You are to keep my mitzvah and obey them. I am Adonai. You are not to profane my holy name. On the contrary, I am to be regarded as holy among the people of Israel. I am Adonai, who makes you holy, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Adonai. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai which you are to proclaim as holy convocations are my designated time. Work is to be done on six days, but the seventh day is the Shabbat of complete rest, a holy convocation. You are not to do any kind of work. It is the Shabbat for Adonai, even in your homes. These are the designated times of Adonai, the holy convocation. You are to proclaim at their designated time. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, between sundown and complete darkness, comes 
the Pesach for Adonai, also known as the Passover. On the 15th day of the same month is the festival of matzah. For seven days, you are to eat matzah. On the first day, you are to have a holy convocation. Don't do any kind of ordinary work. Bring an offering made by fire to Adonai for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, After you enter the land I am giving you and harvest its ripe crops, you are to bring a sheep of the first fruits of your harvest to the corn. He is to wave the sheep before Adonai so that you will be accepted. The Kohen is to wave it on the day after the Shabbat. On the day that you wave the sheep, you are to offer a male lamb without defect in its first year as a burnt offering for Adonai. Its grain offering is to be one gallon of fine flour mixed with olive oil. An offering made by fire to Adonai is a fragrant aroma. Its drink offering is to be of wine, one quart. You are not to eat bread, dried grain, or fresh grain until the day you bring the offering for your God. This is a permanent regulation to all your generations, no matter where you live. When you harvest the ripe ripe crops produced in your land, oops, from the day after the day of rest, that is, from the day you bring the sheaf for waving, you are to count seven full weeks until the day after the seventh week. You are to count 50 days and then you are to present a new grain offering to Adonai. You must bring bread from your homes for waving, two loaves made with one gallon of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits for Adonai. Along with the bread, present seven lambs without defect, one year old, one young bull, and two rams. These will be burnt offerings for Adonai with their grain and drink offerings. An offering made by fire is a fragrant aroma for Adonai. Offer one male goat as a sin offering and two male lambs, one year old, as a sacrifice for peace offerings. The Kohen will wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before Adonai. With the two lambs, these will be holy for Adonai for the Kohen. On the same day, you are to call a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. This is a permanent regulation to all your generations, no matter where you live. When you harvest the ripe crops produced in your land, don't harvest all the way to the corners of your field. And don't gather the ears of grain left by the harvesters. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am Adonai, your God. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, in the seventh month, the first of the month, is to be for you a day of complete rest for remembering, a holy convocation announced with blast of the shofar, shofar. Do not do any kind of ordinary work and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. 
Adonai said to Moses, the tenth day of the seventh month is Yom Kippur. You are to have a holy convocation. You are to deny yourselves and you are to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. You are not to do any kind of work on that day because it is Yom Kippur. To make atonement for you before Adonai your God, anyone who does not deny himself on that day is to be cut off from his people. And anyone who does any kind of work on that day, I will destroy from among his people. You are not to do any kind of work. It is a permanent regulation through all your generations, no matter where you live. It will be for you a Shabbat of complete rest, and you are to deny yourselves. You are to rest on your Shabbat from evening, the ninth day of the month, until the following evening. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month is the Feast of Sukkot, for seven days to Adonai. On the first day, there is to be a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. For seven days, you are to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. And on the eighth day, you are to have a holy convocation and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. It is a day of public assembly. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. These are the designated times of Adonai that you are to proclaim as holy convocations and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. A burnt offering, a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, each on its own day. Besides that, the Shabbat of Adonai, your gifts, all your vows, and all your voluntary offerings that you give to Adonai. But on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, When you have gathered the produce of the land, you are to observe the festival of Adonai seven days. The first day is to be a complete rest, and the eighth day is to be a complete rest. And on the first first day, you are to take choice fruit, palm frogs, thick branches, and river willows, and celebrate in the presence of Adonai your God for seven days. You are to observe it as a feast to Adonai seven days in the year. It is a permanent regulation. Generation after generation, keep it in the seventh month. You are to live in Sukkot for seven days. Every citizen of Israel is to live in a tent, also known as a sukkot, sukkah, as a sukkah, so that generation after generation of you will know that I made the people of Israel live in a sukkah when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai your God. Thus Adonai announced to the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai. Adonai said to Moses, Order the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from crushed olives for the light, to keep lamps burning always. 
Outside the curtain of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to arrange for the lights to be kept burning always from evening until morning before Adonai. This is to be a permanent regulation to all your generations. He is always to keep in order the lamps on the pure menorah before Adonai. You are to take fine flour and use it to bake 12 loaves, one gallon per loaf. Arrange them in two rows, six in one row, on a pure table before Adonai. Put frankincense with each row to be an offering made by fire to Adonai in place of the bread and a reminder of it regularly. Every Shabbat, he is to arrange them before Adonai. They are from the people of Israel as covenant forever. They will belong to Aaron and his sons, and they are to eat them in the holy place, because for him they are of the offerings for Adonai made by fire especially holy. This is a permanent law. There was a man who was the son of a woman of Israel and an Egyptian father. He went out among the people of Israel, and this son of a woman of Israel had a fight in the camp with a man of Israel, in the course of which the son of the woman of Israel uttered the name Yahweh in a curse. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Sholemet the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. They put him under guard until Adonai would tell them what to do. Adonai said to Moses, Take the man who cursed outside the camp. Have everyone who heard him lay their hands on his head and have the entire community stone him. Then tell the people of Israel, Whoever curses his God will bear the consequences of his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of Adonai must be put to death. The entire community must stone him. The foreigner, as well as the citizen, is to be put to death if he blasphemes the name. Anyone who strikes another person and kills him must be put to death. Anyone who strikes an animal and kills it is to make restitution life for life. If someone injures his neighbor, what he did is to be done to him, break for break, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has caused to the other person is to be rendered to him in return. He who kills an animal is to make restitution, but he who kills another person is to be put to death. You are to apply the same standard of judgment to the foreigner as to the citizen, because I am Adonai, your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they took the man who had cursed outside the camp and stoned him to death. Thus the people of Israel did as Adonai had ordered Moses. And we certainly can see where our current laws of the land have come from. 
And uh, they certainly were based on biblical regulations. And uh, they have worked for the United States of America for some time. But little by little, they have been deleted. And people are now able to get by with all kinds of things that they should never be able to. And next we have... Ezekiel 44... 15-31 However, the Kohen who are Levites, the descendants of Zadok, who took care of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, they are the ones who will approach me and serve me. It is they who will attend me and offer me the fat and the blood, says Adonai Elohim. They will enter my sanctuary, approach my table to minister to me, and perform my service. Once they enter the gates of the inner courtyard, they are to wear linen clothing. They are not to wear any wool while serving at the gates of the inner courtyard or inside it. They are to wear linen turbans on their heads and linen underclothes on their bodies. And they are not to wear anything that makes them sweat. Before going out to the people in the outer courtyard, they are to remove the clothes in which they minister, lay them in the holy rooms, and put on other clothes so that they won't transmit holiness to the people by means of their clothing. They are not to shave their heads or let their hair grow long, but must keep their hair carefully trimmed. No Cohen is to drink wine when he enters the inner courtyard. They may not marry a widow or a divorcee, but must marry virgins descended from the house of Israel or a widow whose deceased husband was a Kohen. They are to teach my people the difference between holy and common, and enable them to distinguish between clean and unclean. They are to be judges in controversies, and they are to render decisions in keeping with my rulings. At all my designated festivals, they are to keep my laws and regulations, and they are to keep my Shabbats holy. They are not to come to any dead person because this would make them unclean. However, for father, mother, son, daughter, brother, or sister who has had no husband, they may make themselves unclean. After a Cohen has been purified, he is to wait seven days. Then, on the day he enters the sanctuary, when he goes into the inner courtyard to minister in the sanctuary, he is to offer his sin offering, says Adonai Elohim. Their inheritance is to be this. I myself am their inheritance. You are not to grant them any possession in Israel. I myself am their possession. They are to eat the grain offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings, and everything in Israel devoted to God will be theirs. The first of all the first fruits 
of everything and every voluntary contribution of everything from all your offerings will be for the koan. You are also to give the koan the first of your dough so that a blessing will rest on your house. The koan are not to eat anything, bird or animal, that dies naturally or is torn to death. Next we have Mark 2.23 through 3, 5. One Shabbat, Yeshua was passing through some wheat fields. And as they went along, his disciples began picking heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they violating Shabbat? He said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those with him were hungry and needed food? He entered the house of God when Yatar was Cohen Gadol and ate the bread of the presence, which is forbidden for anyone to eat but the Cohen, and even gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, Shabbat was made for mankind, not mankind for Shabbat. So the Son of Man is Lord even of Shabbat. Yeshua went again into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to accuse him of something. People watched him carefully to see if he would heal him on Shabbat. He said to the man with the shriveled hand, Come up where I can see you. Then to them he said, What is permitted on Shabbat? Doing good or doing evil? Saving life or killing? But they said nothing. Then looking them over and feeling both anger with them and sympathy for them at the stoniness of their hearts. He said to the man, Hold out your hand. As he held it out, it became restored. Then we have Luke 4, 14 through 32. Yeshua returned to the Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And reports about him spread throughout the countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone respected him. Now when he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up on Shabbat, he went to the synagogue as usual. He stood up to read. And he was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of Adonai is upon me because he has anointed me to announce good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the imprisoned and renewed sight for the blind, to release those who have been crushed, to proclaim a year of the favor of Adonai. After closing the scroll and returning it to the Shamash, 
He sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He started to speak to them. Today, as you heard it read, this passage of the Tanakh was fulfilled. Everyone was speaking well of him and marveling that such appealing words were coming from his mouth. They were even asking, Can this be Joseph's son? Then Yeshua said to them, No doubt you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. We've heard about all the things that have been going on over in Nachum. Capernaum. Now do them here in your hometown. Yes, he said, I tell you that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. It's true, I'm telling you, when Elijah was in Israel and the sky was sealed off for three and a half years so that all the land suffered a severe famine, there were many widows, but Elijah was sent to none of them, only to the widow in Zarephath in the land of Zidon. Also, there were many people with leprosy in Israel during the time of the prophet Elijah, but none of them was healed. Only Naaman of Syria, the Syrian, Naaman the Syrian. On hearing this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with fury. They rose up, drove him out of town, and dragged him to the edge of the cliff on which their town was built, intending to throw him off. But he walked right through the middle of the crowd and went away. He went down to Nakurn, a town in the Galilee, and made a practice of teaching them on Shabbat. They were amazed at the way he taught because his word carried the ring of authority. Father God, thank you for showing us that there was controversy back in Yeshua's day. And uh, the people were so stiff-necked and they were so far from God that Yeshua had to bring them closer to you and closer to your rules and show them what you really meant because they had misconstrued a lot of things back in Yeshua's day. Father God, we come before you and humble ourselves before you because so many do not understand your language. They don't understand the Bible. They, If you mention how great the Bible is and how, how, how well it tastes and how wonderful it cures all our ailments, I've had many people respond saying, but I don't, I read it, but I don't understand it. Father God, it's clearly the Rach HaKodesh who makes us understand your word. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to, to meditate on the scripture and to understand what you mean by the communication. Father, we thank you for showing us that being devoted to you is special. Father God, we thank you 
that you show us that it is not to be taken for granted. It's to be honored and valued at all times. And you're very serious about it. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Amen.